I'm glad he stands by us. Two of God's greatest gifts to humankind are laughter and music. Uh, unfortunately, when I undertake to sing, the latter results in the former. So long ago, I accepted that I will never be renowned for my singing voice, but I, like others of us here this morning who shall remain nameless, endeavor to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Seven different times in the King James Version of the Psalms, we are instructed to make a joyful noise to the Lord. So when I sing, I'm just being obedient to the command of our Lord, so cut me a little slack, okay? One church had a man in the choir who couldn't sing, and uh, the other choir members tried to hint to him that he might be happier serving in some other capacity, but he just kept coming to the choir. Finally, the music minister went to the pastor and asked if he might be willing to speak to this man who couldn't sing. So the pastor went to the man and suggested that maybe he should stop singing in the choir, and the man asked why. And the pastor said, well, five or six people have told me you can't sing. And the man said, that's nothing. Fifteen people have told me you can't preach. <laughs> so presumably that man is still singing in the choir somewhere. All of us recognize and all of us agree, whether we can sing or not, that music plays an important role in worship. But there is frequently much disagreement as to the kind and type and style and even duration of music that is to be used in worship. And everyone has their preferences and their, their opinions. In fact, even Bible commentators do. Linsky, in his commentary, said, uh, Didn't Luther say that music drives the devil away? He was, of course, not speaking of jazz. Not a jazz fan was Linsky. Everyone has personal preferences, but when it comes to music in church, people who are otherwise sensible and sensitive will allow their preferences to become biases and insist that their ideas regarding music are the only ones that can truly bring about meaningful worship. That's what it does for them, and so that must be the case for everyone else. Back when those kinds of debates were at their most fervent, they were known as the worship wars. Now, if ever there was an oxymoron, that is one, because you can't have worship and war going on among the same people at the same time. No church is really immune from those kinds of discussions, not even our own. And finding ourselves in a time of leadership transition in our gathering worship service has raised again the question that every church needs to ask itself from time to time as the ages roll by. And that is, what song shall we sing? And perhaps even more importantly, does God even care what we do musically in the church? Let's turn to the pages of Scripture, we'll find out. This morning we're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. 
It's just one verse that I want to read at this point in the sermon. Later, I'll read some verses in the context of this verse. But let me read this one for you now. And since it's just one verse and brief, I won't ask you to stand up and sit right back down again. The scripture says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. And so what do we learn from it? Well, one thing I think is apparently obvious here as Paul wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that God endorses variety in musical expression. The Bible says we should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, how do those stack up against the forms of music that we're familiar with? Where do traditional hymns or gospel songs or praise choruses fit into the mix of all of that? Well, some identify what is here called psalms with what we would call hymns, since the book of Psalms in the Bible was the hymn book of Jesus' generation. And so they would equate the two, and certainly there is legitimacy to that. And what is here in this text called hymns would be more equivalent with our praise songs, our choruses, because they are contemporary songs written by Christians of that era for the purpose of worshiping God. In fact, the word hymn even has something of a pagan connotation because they called hymns the songs that the pagans sang to the pagan gods. And then it's been suggested that spiritual songs were more improvisational melodies or expressions coming from the Spirit. Possibly one even suggested that this might have been the musical equivalent of speaking in tongues. Um, in music, you'd probably call that more of a, a jam session, improvisational time, but not jazz, not jazz. In our modern context, we would... And by the way, in the scripture, those, those words we bring right over into English. Psalms is psalms in Greek, and hymns is hymns. Uh, spiritual songs is just a descriptive name. Songs were just the word for songs in general, and it's qualified by saying they're spiritual songs. They're, they're directed toward God. How does that add up in our modern context? Well, we would probably equate Psalms with scripture songs, like uh, As the Deer, for example, comes directly out of the Psalms. We would uh, probably call hymns, our traditional hymns, our gospel songs, the things that are written in the hymn books, if you will. And spiritual songs are songs of praise that flow from our spirits, spirit infused and motivated, or maybe just praise choruses in general. But the point of all of that is variety is good. God likes variety in worship, in musical worship. Now, there's more to it than that, of course. People today tend to categorize worship music based on certain characteristics they think that it has. For example, spontaneous versus structured 
are shallow versus deep, or worshiper-centered versus God-centered, spiritual versus intellectual, uh, emotive versus cognitive. But I, find, I think those, many of those are more stereotypes than they are reality, because nothing moves me more emotionally than a, a hymn like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. If that doesn't stir your soul, then something is amiss. At the same time, there are many modern songs that are theologically rich and deep. A lot of people are taking note of stuff that the Gettys are putting out. Uh, the, the music that Asher played earlier was a Getty composition. So I think we can't so easily categorize or pigeonhole the music, the psalms, the spent hymns, the spiritual songs that God desires us to present in worship. But all of that is in keeping with God's standards of worship. Because true worship is both spiritual and intellectual. It is both emotive and cognitive. You remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, some segments of the church major on the spirit. They tend to move more in that direction than the other. They emphasize being led by the Holy Spirit. They encourage the development of intuitive worship skills and spontaneous kinds of expressions. Their worship tends to be spontaneous, spirit-led. Other segments of the church focus more on magnifying truth. Biblical scholarship and critical thinking are held in high regard. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Worship tends to be more orderly and structured. And... Each of those traditions is suspicious of the other, as you have no doubt known. But Jesus said that true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth, not one to the exclusion of the other. That's why I try to preach sermons that not only inspire but instruct, and it's why we aspire in our musical worship to, to present things that not only touch the heart, but also the head, the mind, that make us think, that engage us, both emotively and cognitively. But what we're really concerned about, whatever we do, whatever song we sing, is worship. Worship. That's the key. The heart of the matter in worship is that the heart is what matters in worship. Let me say that again. The heart of the matter in worship is that the heart is what matters in worship. We earlier asked the question, does God really care what we do musically in the church? Well, I'm convinced that God is much more concerned with the attitude of our hearts than He is with the forms of our expression in worship. We could sit here on Sunday mornings and beat on boxes and still worship God because worship is a matter of the heart. Now, I would much rather hear our musicians play their instruments. I'd rather hear our 
talented, gifted vocalists use their voice in praise to God, of course. But the attitude of our hearts is the only absolutely essential element for true worship to take place. It is the heart of the matter. Some people can listen to the sound of the breeze blowing through the leaves on the trees and worship God in a very profound manner. Now, those who have told me over the years, you know, Pastor, I can worship just as well out there on the lake fishing on Sunday mornings as I can down there in the church. I do not subscribe to that. Worship God on the, on the lake fishing on Saturday morning. Come down with God's people and worship on Sunday morning. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But it is very possible. I have done it many times. Worshiping the Lord in the surroundings of His glory, His nature, His creation. People can do that without any kind of worship aids or music at all. But then there are others who can sit through a magnificently orchestrated performance of Handel's Messiah and take no more thought for God than they would driving down the highway listening to the Beatles on the radio. Because worship is a matter of the heart. Worship is a matter of the heart. So how is your heart this morning? Is your heart and the attitude of your heart what it should be for worship? Now a key element of that is thankfulness. Thankfulness, gratitude. Worship isn't something we do for God as much as it is something we do in response to what God has done for us and who God is and what God means to us. That's worship. Paul says to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Someone might say, well, you know, I just can't worship with that kind of music. So how can I be, have gratitude in my heart? Well, bless your heart. <laughs> That's what we say in the South, don't we? Bless your heart. You know, the first, first year I went with our team to Guatemala on a mission trip, we were there over the weekend, and so there was a, a little church that was worshiping in one of the buildings there at Camp Calvary before it blew down later, but uh, we stayed and worshiped with them. And before it started, I saw over to the side a guitar. And I thought, well, this, is, this, this could really be uh, a wonderful thing. Well, I later learned that the guy who was playing the guitar didn't know how to tune it, much less play it. He would have sounded better if he'd been beating on a box. But he was worshiping. They were worshiping. You could tell, you could see it, you could experience it. It was infectious, it led us to worship. And here we are, we, we know how to tune our guitars, we know how to play our instruments. Are we worshiping? Don't forget, before the Apostle Paul wrote these words in verse 16, he and Silas had been some time back, imprisoned in a Philippian jail cell. They had been beaten severely, the Bible says. Their feet were locked in stocks, and yet at midnight, the Bible says they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
Now, if they could do that in the dark, dank cave of a jail cell with no instruments whatsoever, do you suppose we can worship here with all of the blessings and the privilege that is ours as Central Baptist Church? God help us if we can't. Let's gain a little perspective here. We ought to be so thankful that we have music at all, that our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and worship to God. We should. Here I stand in the midst of instruments worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. If we can't worship, God help us. God help us. We always get off track in our worship when we forget that worship isn't meant for our pleasure, but for God's. Because the focus of true worship is always God. Notice verse 16 again. Paul says, Sing with gratitude in your hearts to God. To God. Our worship is to God. We sing with gratitude to God. God is the audience for our worship, not those seated around us, not we ourselves. You may know the name of Bill Moyers from the TV programs he used to do on PBS. Uh, before that, he was the special assistant and press secretary for President Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s. And uh, before that, he was a student at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and a, a pastor, the school where I went. In fact, I once preached at a little church in southern Oklahoma that Moyers had pastored back in his seminary days. And they remembered him fondly. But one day Moyers was asked to say grace before a meal in the family quarters of the White House. And so they bowed their heads and Moyer began praying softly. And Johnson, who was certainly not bashful, said, Speak up, Bill, speak up. And without even looking up, Moyer said, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. How often do we forget that we are addressing God in our worship? That God is the focus of our worship? Whenever I hear someone complain about a church or a worship service saying, I didn't get anything out of it, I just have to shake my head at the lack of understanding of what worship is and what worship means in that person's life and experience. We don't preach or pray or sing in order to entertain ourselves or to give ourselves warm, fuzzy feelings and, and make us think we're ready to go into the week. That's not it at all. Yes, true worship rewards us. It does so in countless ways. But we preach and pray and sing and give glory to God, to praise God, to please God, to learn from God, to follow God, to honor God. God is whom we worship. And we forget that at our peril. But when we worship God, when we do that, we do come away from worship with something that is priceless. And that is the blessing of having worshipped God. No one can accomplish that for you, by the way. It's a matter of the heart, a matter of your heart. In spite of what those around you may or may not be doing, your heart is the key to your worship experience. 
And as you focus your worship not on yourself and what you can gain, but on God and what you can give, then you have worshiped. I can paraphrase John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address, shifting it up just a bit. Ask not what God and His church can do for you. Ask what you can do for God and His church. Then you will understand the true meaning of worship. Let me finish today by reading verse 16 in context, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says, the Word of God says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for how easily we're distracted into thinking about ourselves and what we want and what we like and all of those things that cause you to shake your head that we have such little understanding of worship. God, help us to remember why we're here, to worship you what you've done for us, the price you paid for us through your son Jesus on the cross. Our hearts should be overflowing with gratitude, which is in many ways the center of worship, acknowledging who you are, what you've done in our lives, what you're doing in our world. Help us, God, to worship you in spirit and in truth, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to you. And we will trust you to bless us with whatever blessing you desire to give. And we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.